Trying something a little different this year. I've uh, left a copy of notes in the church office, if anybody's interested, not that you would be. Uh, and just be, be forewarned, I haven't had English since the mid-80s. And I never learned how to type, and I typed all that up myself. So, uh, and I've already found some errors after revising it 10 or 12 times. So just uh, review it at your own risk. I didn't do slides because in the past I've got out of order and kind of messed things up. So I'm trying to keep it a little more simple. If you're new here, I'm not a preacher. And if you're not aware of it, it will soon be painfully obvious. But the good news is, I've been told I have preacher hair, so maybe that'll help me out a little bit, okay? Pastor Lewis traditionally preaches from memory without notes, and look, that's very impressive. I have my own tradition. Not only do I use notes, I stand up here and read mine. So hopefully, that's okay with everybody. Thankfully, my job with God's leading is to explain God's Word. I pray that he's pleased and the church is edified. Look, we should be thankful that we are led by pastors that uncompromisingly preach God's word without allowing culture and the philosophy of the world to influence what is preached in the pulpit. When this is allowed, it ultimately ends in dead churches. What did Jesus tell the church of Sardis? You think you're alive, but you're dead. There's a lot of dead churches across America because they compromised with the world. That doesn't happen here, and I'm thankful for it. You know what else it says in the book of Revelation? There's a lot of discouraging things that are going on in America today whether it be the godlessness, the lawlessness. We did have some good news over the weekend with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but we all should be reminded when we read through the book of Revelation that God is sovereign and Jesus wins. Let's keep that in mind. That was just a little extra. That's not even part of the sermon. So Psalm 51, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. This is a Psalm of David. It's a penitent psalm, or it's a psalm of confession and repentance. Before we get into the text, let's explore what Scripture says about David as a person. Number one, David loved God. I love you, O Lord, my strength, Psalm 18.1. David trusted God. He is mentioned in Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame. Also, in Psalm 27.1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? As a result of his love and faith, David was obedient. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Acts 13.22b. David was a good king and had a long blessed reign. The time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years, 1 Chronicles 29, 27a. So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people, 1 Chronicles 18, 14. As we can see from the previous verses, David was a true Old Testament believer, but the superscript says, when Nathan, when Nathan the prophet went to him 
after he had gone into Bathsheba. Even though David was a true believer who knew God personally, he was still capable of committing grievous sins. Listen to 1 Kings 15.5. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. What happened? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, dot, dot, dot. But David remained in Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. The scripture writer alludes to the fact that while remaining behind, David was not where he should have been leading his men. David had been the beneficiary of God's blessings in battle and had defeated many enemies. Therefore, he felt no need to lead his army out, and instead he sent his general Joab. Pride had set in, and at least briefly, David took his eyes off of the Lord. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Success in the eyes of the world increases the risk of self-absorption and pride, which can cause a person to fall further into sin. We should all be humble, on guard, and aware that all of us are capable of committing the most grievous sins as David did. We're familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. Pride led to lust, led to adultery, led to deceit, and finally murder. After David had concealed his sin for a time, God sent Nathan the prophet to confront him. David confessed and was forgiven. The Lord restored David spiritually, and through the Holy Spirit, David went on to pen the most beloved confessional psalm of Scripture, one should we, we should study and use as a pattern of confession in our own lives. Now, this is my summary statement, and Travis told me I, I should always have one, so here it is. Summary statement. Because of God's faithful love and abundant mercy, He strongly desires to forgive those who commit even the vilest of sins when confessed with a contrite heart. Now, let's start looking at the text of Scripture. Verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David here is asking God to forgive him for his pride, lust, adultery, deceit, and murder. David knew he was guilty, and he knew from the Pentateuch that the righteous judgment of God called for death in the matter of premeditated murder. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament addressed only unintentional sins or sins of omission. Premeditated sins committed in a defiant manner were not covered by sacrifices. What could David do? His only option was to cry out to God for mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is withholding deserved judgment. And on the flip side of the same coin, you have grace, unmerited favor. So when one is extended mercy, 
they are also extended grace. By what right can David beg for mercy, especially after committing the great sins that he had? He appealed to the nature of God based on Scripture, namely his steadfast love and abundant mercy. Now, Laramie's already kind of stolen some of my thunder because I was, I'm going to reference Exodus 34 as well. David may have thought back on Exodus 34, 5 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. The word steadfast love here in Hebrew is the word hesed. Now, Brother Lewis told me how to pronounce it, but I can't do it. So this word means faithful or covenant love. One commentator defined it as covenant love in action. The meaning behind said is that God strongly desires to act on behalf of those whom he has a covenant relationship with. Or God greatly desires to extend mercy and forgiveness to his children whom he knows and loves. The next characteristic of God here mentioned in this verse is abundant or tender mercy. This pictures a mother loving the baby in her womb or motherly compassion. Nothing is more nurturing or fierce than a mother's love and protection for her child. Even more so, God tenderly and compassionately loves his children. There are some sitting here who may believe that their sins are too great for God to forgive. Based on Scripture and the nature of God, that is simply not true. There are few who have committed sins as severe as David, yet he was forgiven when he truly confessed. The great news for us sinners is that God's grace and mercy is greater than even our most grievous sins, as the old hymn says. Psalm 103.10 says this, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But you, with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Romans 5:20b says, Where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more. And thank the Lord for that. David humbly but confidently asked for mercy and grace because he was in a covenant relationship with God, a God who was always faithful and ready to forgive. Because of the said and abundant mercy of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, we can know when we confess our sins, we will find forgiveness. Hebrews 4.16 says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we continue to move forward, David uses three words to describe his sins. Stacking these three verbs is meant to convey the severity and comprehensiveness of David's sins. The first one is transgressions. That is willful rebellion against God. It means to step over the line, 
Like when you were a little kid and your mama said, you can play in the yard, but don't leave the yard. As soon as you left your yard, you rebelled against your mom's authority. Before we became believers, we were all rebels and enemies of God. Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled by the death of His Son. The second verb is iniquity. It means to deliberately go astray or purposely departing from the standard or correct path. It can also mean bent or twisted and carries the connotation of perversion. The third verb is sin or missing the mark. As an archer falling short of the target of God's law. I'm just here to tell us none of us are very good archers. David asked God to forgive his sins using three verbs which is meant to convey the greatness of David's need for God's forgiveness. The first one is blot out and that in Hebrew is the word maha. Translated it's in somebody wiping a dish clean but another commentator said no I think it's more accurate to say scraping off the plate or scraping the plate clean, a slate clean. The second verb is wash me. Hebrew it means, the Hebrew is kabas. It's a verb of intensity. This is the idea of vigorously washing laundry. David might say, Lord I'm really dirty and I want you to wash me thoroughly and keep washing me until I'm clean. The third verb is cleanse me. This is the Hebrew word tahar. This carries the connotation of ritual cleansing before entering the tabernacle for worship. Verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Here David is admitting that he is alone responsible for his, for his sins. And he understands that without confessing he will never have his guilt removed. My sin is ever before me. Before confessing the guilt of his sin was constantly on David's mind and it was a heavy burden. David here is demonstrating true confession. Before defining true confession, let's define what it is not. It's not blaming others, including the devil. The devil made me do it. Some of us like to blame God. David may have said, God, you're the one that gave me these sexual urges. You're the one that put Bathsheba's house next to the palace. Or he could have blamed Bathsheba. I didn't make Bathsheba blame in her backyard, bathe in her backyard next to the palace wall. It's all her fault. Also, true confession is not confessing some sins and holding on to others. This is all too common and is inconsistent with true confession. This is an important point. Just as committing only one sin makes a person guilty before God, holding tightly to one's sin unrepentantly shows that a person remains an enemy of God and a slave to sin. True confession admits total responsibility for sin. Confess in Greek is homilege, which means to say the same thing. 
Essentially, it means you see your sin as God does. This will coincide with a brokenness or a sorrow for having offended a good and holy God. The word repentance in Greek means is the word metanoia. It means a change of mind. It means a turning from sin. We turn because we see our sin as God does. We're remorseful and we desire to follow God as Lord. Repentance is when you're walking in one direction, you stop, you do a 180, and you walk in the opposite direction. So you're walking toward your sin, you turn around and walk toward God. That is what repentance means. We might say it means confession and action. This is another important point. True biblical repentance that leads to salvation means a person, no matter the cost, turns from their sin with their entire being. This results in a change of life and behavior. Now look, we talk about remorse, confession, repentance, and we separate these terms theologically and define them. In reality, they all happen together in the heart of a person that's converted to Christ. And none of us could repent without the Holy Spirit's leading and enabling. You know why? Confession and repentance does not come naturally. Continuing in sin does. 2 Timothy 2.25b says, If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the truth. How do we tell if a person is repentant or unrepentant? This is an analogy. The repentant person with the Holy Spirit as Lord and through His power battles sin. Romans 8.13 says that by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. While we, were ne- while we will never be sinless this side of glory, once a person is forgiven, their disposition towards sin changes from love to hate. We all have besetting sins that we struggle with, but we despise them as our Lord does. On the other hand, the unrepentant, the unrepentant, even though they may not realize it, their sin is Lord, and together with their sin leading, they battle God. Why? Because they love their Lord, their sin. John 8:34 says this, Jesus says that everyone who practices sin, in other words, an unrepentant person who is controlled by their sin, is a slave to sin. Let's look at adultery for an example. You have two men that commit adultery. One cries out in remorse and asks God for forgiveness. They beg their wife and children for forgiveness. They have no desire to commit adultery again. You have another guy. He commits adultery. He takes regular business trips. He commits adultery anytime he gets a chance. He doesn't feel bad about it. He blames God because he says God made him that way. He gave him the sex drive. And he, he blames evolution for saying he was born that way and developed that way. That man is not repentant. He's enslaved by his sin of adultery. 
We have recently studied Esau, who didn't truly confess and repent. Hebrews 12 is pretty rough on Esau. It said Esau was unholy and sought repentance with tears, but did not find it. 1 John 1.9 said, if we confess our sins, we'll be forgiven. Is this a contradiction? No. Esau regretted not getting the benefits of his birthright, but he had no sorrow for his sins. He may have said something like this, God, I want my double inheritance, but I don't want you. That was Esau. I'm afraid today there are many professing Christians who are much like Esau. They are attracted to the idea of a free ticket to heaven or a free fire insurance policy protecting them from hell. Much the same way Esau wanted the financial benefits of his birthright. But they don't want the God who provides it ruling over their lives. They love their sin and they have no desire to turn from it. Sorry, that is not biblical Christianity. There is, no, there is no eternal life without true confession and repentance. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Against you only have I sinned. You may be wondering, why would, God, why would David say something like this? David is not denying that he committed great evil against Uriah and Bathsheba. We can't really fully grasp what David was saying here without an understanding of the holiness of God. Holy is defined as set apart. God is very different or set apart from us in many ways. He's omnipotent all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing. We're none of those things. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere at once. We're not. He's immutable. He never changes. He's eternal. He's uncreated. He has no beginning and no end. These are called the incommunicable attributes of God, and we don't possess any of these things. So in that way, God is holy or set apart from us. But is that what Scripture is really talking about when it tells us that God is holy? The way we are most unlike God is that we are sinners and He is not. God is instead morally perfect by nature. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look it wrong. In Isaiah's vision of God in chapter 6, he could only see his sin in comparison to God's holiness. Isaiah grasps greater than we do how he measured up against the sinless nature of God. We are most outraged when someone hurts an infant or small child because of their innocence. How much more do our sins offend a perfect, holy God? Also, the penalty of our transgressions are magnified with the status of the offended. What does that mean? It means that you're in for a much stiffer penalty if you assault a king rather than one of your peers. 
This is an important point. This is an oh me point, not an amen point. Our sin is an assault on the sinless nature and holiness of God. So when you break it down to its bare level, that's what our sin is. An assault on the sinless nature and holiness of God. This should terrify us. Now the second part of the verse, moving on, says that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This half of verse 4 is essentially saying that David has acknowledged his sins before God and will, it, will submit to whatever judgment God has for him. God, I'm asking for mercy, but I will accept whatever judgment you have because you are Lord. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. This has nothing to do with David's parents' fidelity. David was a legitimate child. I have a precious four-month-old grandson. I think he's up there right now. His name is Liam. He looks just like his grandpa. We were both born with a big arch in our backs that represent our predisposition to rebel against God and run life our own way instead of following God as Lord. And guess what? We're surrounded by a bunch of other people in here with the same arch in their backs. Genesis 8.21 says, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We don't have to teach a toddler to lie. They're lying as soon as they can talk. We don't have to teach them to hide after they sin either. How often have you found your toddler trying to hide after disobeying? Psalm 58.35 says this, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. The point David is emphasizing here is that this is not David's first sin. He's been a sinner his entire life because he was born with a sinful nature. He got it honestly because his parents were sinners too. I read this quote from R.C. Sproul and thought it summed up this point pretty well. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God instructs Samuel that he does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Inward being here in verse 6 means a center of our being and will. <clears throat> Some would probably say mind or heart. The point here is God is not impressed with our external attempts of piety and worship if our internal motives, our heart and will, is not pure. Pure motives create a deep desire for fellowship and a capacity to learn truth and wisdom from God's Word. God desires truth and reliability from us, His children. This could also be stated as He desires trustworthiness and faithfulness. Even though David is a believer, when he looks inside, he only sees corruption and deceit because of his unconfessed sin. 
The truth and wisdom from God's Word will not be desired, learned, or applied when our mind is weighed down by the guilt of unconfessed sin. This is true even when we feebly try to cover it up with regular church attendance. Here's another take-home point. Unconfessed sin dulls the truth of God's Word in our minds and causes our worship to be false and joyless. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 7 parallels verses 3 and 4 here as he is asking for forgiveness again. Purge me with hyssop. Purge me literally means to unsend me. Hyssop was a leafy branch. One of its uses was to sprinkle water to purify the sanctuary. David is asking God to remove his sins and enable him to be accepted by God in the sanctuary. Whiter than snow. Whiter than snow signifies purity and holiness. David is expressing confidence in God and saying, Lord, if you wash me, I'll really be cleaner than the whitest snow, and I'll be free of deceit and corruption. Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your skins are, sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David wants to hear the joyful and glad praise in the sanctuary again. The joy of true worship was blocked by David's sin and guilt. Bones you have broken. Here it means that his spirit or his inner self was broken by the discipline of the Lord. An analogy worth mentioning here about broken bones. An ancient shepherd would break the leg of a wayward sheep and carry it on his shoulders until it was healed. During that time, the sheep would develop a love for the shepherd. And once healed, the sheep would follow the shepherd everywhere, never again wanting to be separated. That's a beautiful picture of how God lovingly disciplines and sanctifies us, His children. Even though believers are forgiven, we are not immune from the consequences of our sins. David did not get away with murder. The baby born to Bathsheba died. Family turmoil followed David the rest of his life. His son Amnon raped his stepsister Tamar. His son Absalom had Amnon killed and then tried to kill and overthrow David. Absalom was eventually tragically killed. Solomon had over 700 wives and lived a worldly lifestyle for the majority of his life. God will discipline his own children to teach them not to stray. Proverbs 3.12 and Hebrews 12.6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves. If you're getting away with your sins without God's discipline, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. David is saying, Lord, don't look at my sins. I'm ashamed. 
And at the same time, he's asking God to forgive him of his sins and iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The word create here is the Hebrew word bara. God is the only one who creates a clean heart or a transformed mind in a person. It is not produced by a sinner trying to clean up his act in his own strength to try to earn God's favor. Not only is David asking to be forgiven, but he is aware that even though he is a believer, there remains something, something deeply ungodlike and deceitful in his heart and mind. Some may ask, if all my sins are forgiven, why do I need to confess? It is true that when a person is born again, they are forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. They are justified in the eyes of the Father and are clothed in Christ's righteousness instead of their sins. They are forgiven in a positional or judicial sense and have permanently escaped the wrath of God because Jesus was punished for their sins on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Even though we are forgiven in a judicial sense, it does not mean we are clean in a moral or practical sense. When we sin as believers, there is still a need for confession, and we sin regularly. In that sense, we are guilty and filthy before God. We need to be cleansed by God in a moral sense on a regular basis. We must confess and agree with God that our sins are offensive to Him and be forgiven. Some believers may think they really don't sin much. Let's look briefly at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I fail to live up to this every morning when I'm driving to work in traffic. Neglecting confession over time will cause a tolerance of sin and eventually cause the productive work of the Holy Spirit to be quenched in our lives. It's as if the Holy Spirit turns off the faucet of His power and joy until we confess. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Regular confession should continue throughout the life of the believer. Over time, a believer should begin to look more and more like Christ Jesus as the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of the Son. Coinciding with this change, the believer becomes even more aware and intolerant of his own sin. This is the process of sanctification. So, David has asked God for a change of heart that only God can give. He also desires wisdom from God's Word to help him make wise choices and avoid similar sins in the future. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
This is the opposite side of the coin of verse 10. In verse 10, he's asking God to do something for him. In verse 11, he's asking God not to do something. What's he asking him not to do? David remembered what happened to King Saul. He was rejected as king because of disobedience, and the Holy Spirit left him. Before the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would indwell prophets, priests, and kings temporarily to allow them to do God's work. David was praying that what happened to Saul would not happen to him. As New Testament believers, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit permanently from the moment of conversion. But unconfessed sin in our lives causes the Holy Spirit to put our usefulness to God on the shelf. As it should be for us, David's relationship to God was the most important thing in his life. The Holy Spirit was much more than an enabler that allowed him to be an effective king and leader. The Holy Spirit was his source, was David's source of joy and strength <coughs> that allowed him to teach, praise, and write these great psalms that have been treasured by the people of God for over 3,000 years. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of, my salva of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The joy of your salvation. While David was being crushed with the guilt of spiritual depression and unconfessed sin, David had no joy. Confession and forgiveness would allow him to experience again <coughs> the joy of a right relationship with God. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Willing here is used in connection with a free will offering. If someone wanted to worship the Lord, they had to bring a peace offering to the priest called a free will offering. After being forgiven, David is asking God to give him an attitude that is free of guilt with a strong desire to worship and obey. Confession and repentance resulting in forgiveness should, in a believer, produce a strong desire for worship and a heart of gratitude and obedience. Verses 13 through 15. Then I will treat, teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Here David is recounting his awareness of how his sin has impacted his relationship to God. It has essentially rendered his spirit unwilling and unable to speak for the Lord. While under the crushing guilt of his sin, he was unable to teach, sing, praise, or worship. Once forgiven, the Holy Spirit would enable David to teach sinners God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness and allow him to shout the praise of God's righteousness, and therefore experience true worship. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 63.3 When we are under the burden of unconfessed sin, 
We might teach Sunday school, but we are ineffective or ineffective and powerless. We might stand in the congregation and mouth the words to songs, but we don't worship. We want to slide under the pew during preaching because we are convicted. We don't witness to the lost. And lastly, God does not hear our prayers. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 66, 18. Verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God takes no pleasure in hypocritical, self-righteous, ritualistic pseudo-worship. What God desires before true worship can occur is confession with a broken spirit, free of self-will and arrogance, along with a humble dependence on God. A contrite heart is one that shows remorse or godly grief over sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. This is illustrated beautifully in Luke 18 with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, with an attitude of self-righteousness, arrogantly looked toward heaven and thanked God that he was not like other men. And then he recounted his ritualistic good deeds. In other words, he confessed his righteousness as a good work to God instead of confessing his sins. The tax collector, on the other hand, humbly bowed his head, beat his breast, because he had godly grief of a contrite heart, and he begged for mercy because of his sins. He was the one that was forgiven that day. Verses 18 and 19, we're getting close to the end. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. A lot of biblical scholars believe these verses were added later in the exilic or post-exilic period. Hence the phrase, builds up the walls which had been previously destroyed. Nevertheless, the psalmist is asking God to bless and protect his people. But first, they must repent with a broken spirit. This will allow true worship and an unleashing of the blessings of God. Empty false worship without remorse for sins and accompanying confession and repentance is not pleasing to God. Let me repeat the summary statement of Psalm 51. Because of God's faithful love and abundant mercy, He strongly desires to forgive those who commit even the vilest of sins when confessed with a contrite heart. After studying Psalm 51, I hope it has made us aware of our need for regular confession of our sin to the Lord. Others here may realize that they have never confessed 
and repented of their sins. And they know some facts about God, but they don't know God personally. I have great news. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I think it's important that we understand this verse in the context with which it was written. Am I saved if I publicly verbalize Jesus as Lord, and I even believe in the facts of the resurrection? Is that what Paul meant when he wrote this verse? Until recent history, most people of the world lived under monarchies. Whether the king was good or evil, you owed your allegiance, and it could cost you your life in battle. You also had to obey the king's laws or face the consequences. Public confession of Jesus as Lord in the first century usually guaranteed persecution and rejection from non-believing friends, family, and authorities. This required counting the cost before making a confession. In light of this, we can understand that confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord means to publicly commit your allegiance and obedience to Jesus as your great and good King. That deserves an amen. This commitment is not to try to earn heaven by our own merit, but out of love and gratitude to the Lord for a gift undeserved but freely given. This commitment results in the believer being transformed by God into a new person. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. How do we know God loves us? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> Excuse me just a minute. There has never been a king like Jesus who out of love voluntarily left his heavenly kingdom To come and dwell in poverty, live a perfect life, be despised and rejected, and ultimately be crucified for the sins of his rebellious creation. What does believing in your heart God raised Jesus from the dead really mean? Why was believing the resurrection so important? Believing the facts of the resurrection means only believing in your head, not your heart. The resurrection proves that the wrath of God was satisfied after punishing Jesus on our account. This allows us to be forgiven and enjoy a right relationship with God. 
Romans 5, 9 through 10. Since then, we have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. The resurrection also validates all of the claims that Jesus made, including His sinlessness, deity, and His demands for trust, repentance, and obedience. John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus is claiming sinlessness here. John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying that he is Yahweh God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. We have to trust in Jesus. Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We must repent. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love Jesus, we will obey. If Jesus was not God and was not without sin, then we have no hope for forgiveness and are still dead in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This believing is not believing that Jesus existed or even the facts of the resurrection, resurrection, but it's trusting Jesus' perfect life and finished work on the cross with one's entire being as the one, only one, sufficient to secure our forgiveness and salvation. We are not capable of any of these things in our own strength, but we are drawn by God and enabled by the Holy Spirit to confess repent, and believe. Salvation is an act of God by an extension of grace and mercy to us. I'll close with the words of Jesus in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is sufficient and trustworthy. Lord, we understand our sinfulness. We understand our need for regular confession. Lord, I just ask that the Holy Spirit would do his work here today and that you have been pleased with what has been said. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.